Welcome to another edition of This Week in Digital Trust, 11M's regular conversation about all things tech policy, privacy and cybersecurity. I'm Arj, I'm joined again by Jordan. Hi Jordan. Hey Arj, how's it going? Pretty good. I'm getting used to a different rhythm this week. We're Both of us are travelling, so we've had to sort of move things around and move things forward in terms of our recording schedule. Indeed. So yeah, earlier in the week, but on the upside, we get to catch up in person later this week, so looking forward to that. We do. Despite the disrupted plans, there are a couple of stories that were interesting enough that we wanted to touch base on those. What's the first one that caught your eye? Uh, starting with the cybersecurity strategy overhaul. This was front page news in the Australian, which was pretty exciting. Cybersecurity strategy being front page news is, I think, a big deal. We've gotten used to the occasional data breach being big news, but when it's policy and strategy being big news, that's very exciting for me. Yeah, I mean, if cyber is going to be on the front, page let it be for a strategy and not for an attack (laughs) exactly so yeah front page article in the australian labor wipes clean slate in overhaul of scott morrison's cybersecurity strategy so the thrust of the story here is that uh, the albanese government will be overhauling the previous government's cybersecurity strategy that was announced in 2020 i believe uh 1.7 billion dollar cybersecurity strategy there was also related to that, which we've talked about in April this year, Morrison also announced a $9.9 billion project, Red Spice, which was really focused on defense spending around the Signals Directorate, our electronic spy agency. So the announcement is not that Red Spice is going to get canned, although I think with the strategy being reassessed, there might be some changes to the prioritization of that spending as well. The new strategy or the new approach was announced by Claire O'Neill, who's the Home Affairs and Cybersecurity Minister. She said Australia's next cybersecurity strategy will be a whole-of-nation effort. It'll be grounded in sovereign capability with a plan for the future workforce and growth of the cybersecurity sector, including Australian cyber SMEs, which I think is, you know, we'll get to this in a second, but addressing some of the concerns that were raised around the previous strategy. She says it'll build resilience with real engagement and industry alliances to deal with cyber shocks in an assured and not anxious way. What did you make of that, Arch? Yeah, I think there's a bit of reading between the lines there to be done. I think there was certainly some commentary, or certainly I, I felt it, and some people I you know, was in conversation felt it, that there was a fair amount of increasing of the rhetoric around nation-state activity and critical infrastructure attacks, which... You know, on one hand, legitimate, you know, there is an increased sort of threat environment. But then I think the focus around, you know, there was the famous press conference that Scott Morrison did, I think, in mid-June 2020, where he sort of broke into the morning breakfast shows and did this big nationwide press conference about cyber attacks underway. And when that was analyzed and pressed over the coming days, it wasn't that there was any particular imminent or ongoing current cyber attack. It was just a bit of grandstanding to say, hey, 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 cyber's been happening for a while now. And sure enough, following on within the six to 12 months after that, we saw these big announcements of more funding for ASD and for defense. And reading between the lines, I think that's the kind of toning down and, you know, let's be more assured and less anxious about the way we talk about this. I think that's what we're talking about. That was my read just on the tone, right? The Morrison era is be alarmed, you know, like the rhetoric around the previous strategy seemed to be about raising the stakes, getting people excited about this stuff. It's about national security, it's about safety, it's about military capability, hence, you know, Red Spice and 
ASD and offensive cyber capabilities when the new strategy and the new rhetoric seems to be much more about let's all just calm down. This is a long-term project. It's about capability building. It's about getting industry up to scratch. You know, even scams gets a mention. It's about building resilience across the board and building the workforce rather than just investing in a few key agencies. Yeah, and I think that was our sort of instinctive response at the time as well with Red Spice. I think the heavy focus on defense and more toys for defense didn't seem like it was a very holistic approach. I mean, with this announcement from the Albanese government, I think there's legitimately some level of calls about, well, what's the detail? Like, if there's going to be an overhaul, what are you unwinding? What are you not unwinding? Particularly, like, industry would have responded as best it could to sort of the various announcements and started to put things in place. And industry would want to know now, is any of that now obsolete? So there is a legitimate call for more detail, and I expect we'll we'll get that. But I think that the shift in sentiment you're talking about there, I think, is legitimate and valid because we felt it at the time that it was very much driven about cybersecurity strategy equals lots and lots of money for defense, and it's not. You know, cyber strategy is an economy-wide issue. There's all of these parts of the economy that have to take accountability. Like even the cyber strategy documents tend to say that most of the accountability for defending against cybersecurity risks sits in the private sector because most of our facilities, most of our infrastructure is run by the private sector. So it's not a strategy just to empower defense. It's, you know, also about empowering industry. Yeah, for sure, right? And that's why we have those SOCI, the security of critical infrastructure reforms, right? Pushing security obligations out to this broader range of critical infrastructure providers. You know, supermarkets and butchers are now critical infrastructure in ways that they weren't before, right? And legitimately so, right? Like food logistics is critical and the security of those systems is extremely important as well as the telcos, as well as the water, as well as defense. And so that was one of those criticisms we talked about in that Red Spice context as well, right? That the proposals to recruit 1900 security professionals into ASD over the next 10 years, I think it was, Where are they coming from? They're coming out of industry. Yeah, and like we've legitimately heard people in industry who are now having to build up cybersecurity programs and undergo uplifts talk about talent shortages as they have for many years, but also now saying we're particularly worried about talent shortages because ASD has announced, they've flagged that they're going to hire 1,900 people. They're going to be sucking up the talent. And if you are cyber talent, that's a great draw card for you. So, you know, we heard from CISOs, heads of security teams in the industry saying this is something that's a bit of a challenge for us. So I think absolutely spot on in terms of the sentiment shift from Claire O'Neill and from the Albanese government around saying we need to think about the workforce challenges. We need to think more about whole of nation resilience. And then like the SOCI reforms are not insignificant. You know, some of the obligations are going to require companies that haven't really done this before to suddenly have mature cybersecurity and risk management programs. And part of it is them understanding how to build their own capabilities, but a lot of it will be how can government assist that and coordinate information sharing and all of these things that should be part of a national strategy. So shifting the emphasis towards that as opposed to just this dichotomy of like defense will be all-powerful and just step in when things go wrong, which is kind of, to some extent, the way the uh, previous strategy was framed. That's emerging as the theme of the Scott Morrison government, right? Centralised power, 
one person can step in if they need to. <laughs> All that ministry stuff. Just roll that blueprint out. Exactly, right? <laughs> but I think also that focus on building the workforce and building capabilities. I mean, one of the things that really caught me as well in O'Neill's language was this idea of linking cybersecurity to economic growth. And it made me think back to Jonathan's interview with Avishai Ostrin about Israel's super vibrant tech startup scene and the number of really successful and interesting cyber security and tech startups in Israel, you know, a country, again, very focused on security, which has successfully cultivated a really vibrant industry around cybersecurity. And I think it's a really useful lesson and it made me think about that conversation because there's not a need to frame cyber as a cost center or a defense expenditure. It can be a real asset if we can build that industry, if we can build that innovation and sell that overseas. There's a real opportunity for benefit as well as just like spending the money on defense, right? It's a great comparison, I think, because Israel's definitely been the sort of poster child for the startup cybers and how that compare an economy. But it's also a good comparison because it underscores the difference between our workforce situation. So Israel has compulsory military service and part of that military service includes doing some level of cyber work, you know. And so you have a workforce that is automatically being created because of this compulsory military service element and the training in cyber, which can then play out into industry and into startup land because you've got this talent pipeline. We don't have that. We need a strategy if we want to do anything like that. We need a government that's thinking holistically about skills, which we're seeing in other portfolios of the current government is also being looked at for all the tech skills, roundtables and, and whatnot. So again, it just underscores that to do this well, we need that kind of holistic strategy. Yeah, that's a super interesting point. I mean, you heard it here first, the solution to the future cyber workforce is compulsory military service. Yeah, I'm sure I'll win friends with that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> So, somewhat unrelated, the other news story we wanted to talk about this week was the next iteration in the facial recognition saga. You know, we've been talking about facial recognition in the context of Clearview AI. Much more recently, we've been talking about it in the OAIC's investigation of Bunnings and the Good Guys and Kmart. The next iteration comes from an ABC News article about Clubs ACT, which is the Industry Association for Clubs in ACT, and a proposal from them to trial facial recognition as part of the self-exclusion arrangements for problem gamblers. So there's a framework in most states, I think, but in the ACT for, you know, if you have difficulties managing gambling, pokey machines, or other gambling, you can register for exclusion from gambling venues. So you fill in a form and then people won't let you in gambling venues. The proposal is really to trial facial recognition cameras at the entrances of those gambling areas that would identify people on the self-exclusion register and alert staff if they're trying to enter the gambling space. It was one of those ones where you know it was hard not to sort of be a little bit taken aback by even the idea, just given the the outrage we had just witnessed in the weeks and months gone by. Read the room, guys. Come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just just amazing. But um, like looking at it closely, it was interesting to see the angle around opt in. You know, like the idea that if we can get 
people to opt into this, you know, so people who have self-identified as having a problem with gambling and they want to be excluded, that they opt into this and that would somehow kind of overcome some of these concerns we've had or this outrage we've had. One, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that the technology is problematic for, I think, reasons we might talk about and we've talked about in the past. But I did think it was interesting that that was the sort of argument that clubs ACT were making. And I think it was maybe an outgrowth or a response to the way the conversation around the retailers like Bunnings came out and good guys kind of played out, which was a lot of it was about consent. You know, you're going to have people whose faces are being scanned and there was no real reasonable or informed consent in that happening. And, you know, perhaps it seemed to me that, well, if consent is the issue, what if we made it that you know, people had to opt in in order for this to be viable? And I think that to me maybe suggested that there was a way that that conversation played out that encouraged clubs ACT to take that perspective, which, I mean, it's problematic on a couple of fronts. One is that, well, it's not just the people who are wanting to be self-excluded whose faces are being scanned. Everyone's faces are being scanned. So the opt-in doesn't really cover everybody. But the second thing is we want to have this conversation, I think, around facial recognition, not just in terms of consent more about the proportionality of a technology like this and the privacy impact of a technology like this being reasonably necessary for what they're trying to achieve. And, you know, that's certainly how the OAIC has tried to talk about it, I think, even in the context of Bunnings and Kmart when they put out their statement. They're using that language around proportionality and reasonably necessary. There's a there's an OASC determination about 7-Eleven as well. 7-Eleven, I think about a year ago now, was told off by the OASC for using facial recognition in, um, you know, the little surveys you fill out where you're happy with the service in the 7-Eleven, essentially to stop people gaming, just to identify if the same person was filling in five-star reviews over and over and over and over again. And they have that focus on necessity and proportionality, right? And so, yeah, I I absolutely agree that that's where we should be focused. For me, this story really irritates me because it's this classic strategy of linking a technology tool to an outcome that we all support and then using that as like, well, surely you've got to support facial... If you support self-exclusion from venues you must support the use of facial recognition for that purpose. And that's like not the question. You know, we've talked about this kind of strategy being deployed by folks like Clearview, right, where they're focusing on the really beneficial uses of their technology that you can't argue with. Like they associate themselves with, you know, child protection use cases. The thing we need to ask with this ACT trial is not whether self-exclusion is a good thing it's whether this is the best and safest way of getting there right and so they want to frame it as this is the only possible way we could exclude people from venues when you can just check id on entry to the gaming venue you probably should you know it's a licensed venue they should be checking people's id in any case So instead of linking it to this outcome that we all agree to, really, we need to consider what is the benefit? Is it staffing reductions? Is it cost cutting? Is it more efficiency in managing that list? And that's the conversation we should be having. We're interfering with people's privacy. We're scanning people's faces to make it easier to administer this list to mean we have to employ less security guards rather than in order to enable people to self-exclude. It's so true. Like It seems like as soon as it's proposed as an answer, 
the field of discussion seems to narrow to we're not doing anything at the moment around this problem space. And then, so that's the choice. Or introduce this technology which will automate or scale or allow us to do more in that problem space to good ends. But yeah, sure, there's some, you know, maybe there's some negative side effects. As opposed to, well, what about a third, fourth, fifth, or sixth option that's somewhere in between where, okay, maybe it's not as efficient or not as like fully automated and supercharged in terms of throwing a bunch of compute power at something, but you're not violating privacy across the board in the process as well. And you're so right about how it sort of immediately becomes a sort of binary conversation instead of looking at like in this case, you know, could staff do the job? Are there other ways that are more proportionate? Or in the policing context, could putting more police do the job? Or in the workplace safety context, like the retail context, could putting on more security guards do the job? You know, thinking about those other things, particularly while the technology is still so problematic. Yeah, for sure. There's this headline in the ABC article which says technology takes the human error out. And it's another like little aspect of this story that really irritates me that related to this question about how these things are framed, right? There's this assumption that tech is the only solution, which you've just been talking about. There's also this assumption that tech is like less prone to error, that technology will make better decisions than humans and the technology won't introduce new sources of error or new sources of risk. Minor note, but it's just this like irritation I have with the phrasing that is often adopted in these kinds of articles, which kind of starts from the assumption that technology is better, that technology doesn't introduce new, new risks and just doesn't cite any kind of evidence for that, you know? It's also interesting to me that there's some sort of pull towards this technology as well like in the face of the outrage and the uproar that we've had over the last few weeks and months that we continue to see organizations going public with plans to introduce it i think that's really interesting and i just looking kind of overseas just saw a piece that the canadian mounties and have not ruled out that they will consider the use of it despite having an investigation by their federal privacy commissioner uh, into the use of Clearview AI. And, you know, it just it continues to be looked at as an option. And it'll be interesting to see, like, does our local regulator take a more stronger stance on it? Are things like the proposals to ban or introduce a moratorium introduced? Because it feels like companies continue to want to step into this terrain, even though we have seen that it is problematic. Yeah, it seems to be such a appealing capability, right? To be able to, you know, identify people out of a video feed or, you know, in the Clearview AI sense, identify people from a photograph. For me, I think it boils down to a question of trust in institutions and in the technology. You know, we've been observing this real visceral objection, reaction, popular concern about the technology. I I wonder if I feel like that is largely a product of just not trusting the people, the technology, the institutions. For me, and I think we've talked about this in the Bunnings and Kmart and Good Guys context, I feel like you could design a technology here which most people would be pretty comfortable with. You know, if you gave me assurance that the system is secure, that nothing's ever retained about anyone, that it's never going to be used for anything else, that the only people who it's even pinging are people on the self-exclusion list, and that there's zero other information that's being retained, 
then I feel like a lot of people could be reasonably comfortable with that kind of system. It's just you can't give that assurance. Yeah, and like I think those are the boxes to tick. And I'd be interested to think if an organization could earn the trust that it will do all those things. Like if I think about those things, would somebody think that you know, government, if the government said it's not going to be used for anything else, would levels of trust in government allow people to overcome and accept that promise? Um, would they of a large tech company? Would they of a retailer? But I think you're right. I think those are the things that if you could guarantee and, and assure against and, and demonstrate would kind of get you across the line potentially. I mean, we trust Apple, right? I use facial recognition on my phone every day. They've spent a lot of time building that trust around their management of secure data on my phone. They put a lot of effort into being very clear that they're only ever using it for this purpose and people become pretty comfortable with it. So, you know, I I think it's doable. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, just uh, in related news on where it can go, I mean, there's announcements about Amazon introducing palm scanning technology to check out at Whole Foods. So again, it's like, they're trying it on. They're saying, well, could we, you know, could we say we'll use your biometric information? So, yeah, I don't know. I certainly don't think Clubs ACT has ticked all those boxes. And I'm yet to see a um, big retailer or a big organization to be able to publicly tick all those boxes. You know, whether or not they've done the assessments and the due diligence and ticked all those boxes privately, the challenge is getting public endorsement, the public trust to deploy the system. But, you know, I mean, the takeaway for me comes back to what, what I said at the start of this story, which is like, read the room, please, Clubs ACT. You know, there's a current OAC investigation. The use of this technology in exactly this context is super up in the air. Um, many would argue just straight up illegal because you can't solve the consent problem. Um, but, you know, they're pushing ahead with the, <laughs> with the pitch regardless. And I suspect it won't be the last time we talk about <laughs> a company or an organization trying it again. So, yeah, uh, I think you're right. But, yeah, I suspect that it'll be back again for another round of the podcast. It will. It will. We didn't even get to talking about South Australia, actually. Just as a note, South Australia has essentially this technology mandated for gambling venues across the state. So there's a whole bunch of places where this is already in place in South Australia, which, you know, concerning, but maybe we'll talk about that in a future episode. For another time. Indeed. Thanks, Jordan. That was fun. Yeah, that was good. See you later this week and chat to you next time. Chat to you next time. Yeah. See ya.